Well, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Terry, uh, and uh, I am uh, my wife and I, Joyce, our regular attenders here. And it's a privilege for me to be here again this morning. I've talked to you, I spoke here several other times. And today I've got the assignment of talking about the fall of Jerusalem. But before I do, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. And uh, I'd like to just say this. It's, uh, it was great to hear the children sing. And uh, you who are fathers, you're blessed. And I pray that you as a father will be given the skills to, to live as a godly father. And that would be a great thing. I want to start today a little bit talking about my family tree. My great-grandfather and grandmother and uh, their four children came to the United States from Sweden. And uh, they arrived here. And uh, they were here for a while. They, they moved into the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, so then my grandfather, another family from Sweden, moved in in their community. And my grandfather found this woman and they got married. So my grandfather and grandmother were two strong, strong Christians. Uh, the story is my grandmother always prayed, always prayed for her family. My father, grandfather, was someone who was a leader in the church, may have even built the church, and certainly was someone who preached often at the church. And so my grandfather and grandmother had 12 children, nine boys and three girls. This strong Christian family. Well, none of the 12 chose to follow Christ. And uh, one of the worst was my father. And my father was a drinker, was a wild person. And when he was 30 or so years of age, um, he got hurt. And he decided to pray. And he prayed, and God healed him. And he stopped drinking. And then, the, then shortly after, my mom became a Christian. And they had six children, which is, I'm one of them. And they all became Christians. This huge family from great grandparents who are Christians, one line stayed true to Christ. You know, is it we were, were we special? No, absolutely not. It was God's grace. And if you're a Christian here today, the only reason is not because you're great, it's not because you're better than the rest of your family, it's because of God's grace. And that's one of the things, it's one of the themes of First and Second Kings. God chooses a people. And you remember, you may remember last week we were together. He talks about, uh, Cabot told us that God chose Abraham. He chose Abraham and gave him this uh, blessing. He says, I will make you a blessing and you, as a nation and you will bless others. And then Cabot went on to talk about all the uh, choices God made in choosing people. He chose, first of all, he chose uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over uh, Esau. He chose Judah over the other 12 tribes. He chose David over Saul. He chose the southern kingdom over the northern kingdom. God chooses people by his grace. 
And he wants three things from them. It's very clear in 1 Kings. He wants them to serve the one and only true God. The second thing he wants is he, he, he wants them not to worship idols. And when we read First and Second Kings, all the idea of idols is talking about there is wood idols and poles. But God doesn't want us to serve, worship idols as well. And he's not talking idols such as statues or poles. He's talking about jobs can become a cop, can become an idol. Family can become an idol. 401Ks can become an idol. God doesn't want any idols. He wants to be served lonely. And finally, he says the third thing is, I want you faithful to our covenant. So last week, we heard about the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom. And they failed because they didn't follow faithfully God's covenant. Today, we're going to look at the fall of Jerusalem. And what you have before you is uh, the beginning of a timeline that I put together. And I think what I'd like to do is kind of roll through this to give you some idea where we're going today. This is the, uh, can I go back one uh, slide? This is the fall of, from Samaria to the fall of Jerusalem. After Samaria fell, there was 30, 136 years. It didn't happen automatically. And let's just kind of roll through, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. Go through the next slide. Uh, these are the dates and the different kings that were involved there. And then the next slide, and you see some more. And then, then there was the first uh, deportation to Babylon. There was a second deportation. And then finally, in 586 B.C., uh, there was the fall of Jerusalem. And you can go back to the second slide, if you would. I'm sorry, I, I need to move to help you know what I'm trying to have you do. But uh, uh, what we're going to do this morning is this. What I'd like to do is I'd like to highlight four of these kings and who were in between the fall of Samaria and the fall of Jerusalem. And the reason I'm highlighting them is because you'll get to understand more clearly how God deals with his people and secondly, how he wants us to respond to him. So let's pray as we, before we look at these kings. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to worship you and first and foremost today, Father, we thank you that you called us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you. It wasn't because we were lovely, because we were special, but it's because you loved us. And Father, we pray today, as we look at your word, we will know more clearly how you want us to re respond as one of, your one of your chosen people. And we thank you for what you're going to do in and through us, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first king I want to highlight is Hezekiah. Hezekiah uh, became king at 25 years old. And he ruled in the land for 29 years. And what we learn from Hezekiah is this. God blesses those who are faithful to the covenant. Hezekiah, we learn from Hezekiah that God blesses those who are faithful to the covenant. It says in 2 Kings 18, 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
according to all that David, his father, had done. He trusted in the Lord and the God of Israel so that there was none like him among the kings before him and nor among those who were after him. This is Hezekiah. In the 14th year of his reign, the Assyrians attacked. They attacked Samaria in his sixth year reign, and that's when Samaria fell. But in the 14th year, they attacked uh, Judah, and they demanded a tribute. The Assyrians did. Get this for the tribute. 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. Small amount, right? That's what the tribute was. So he, he, the story goes, Hezekiah was even looking at the walls of the temple and finding gold so he could give them. But what happened is the Assyrians made him do his tribute. They paid their tribute and they reneged on their tribute. They started, they started, they came right up to their wall. They started threatening them, the Judah. They also started mocking them. So what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays. Something that the other kings hadn't done before him. He prayed. He asked God for help. He asked for Isaiah. And Isaiah comes in and says, and they sought the Lord. And you know what? God delivered them. And what happened was this. They're all at the gate. You can imagine this. They're all at the gate mocking the Jew. Judah and said, how can you trust Hezekiah to save you? And all of a sudden, the king gets a call and says, you got to go home. So he left immediately. He goes back to Assyria. What happens? His sons kill him. So that was a surprise to the, uh, to the Jew, uh, people from Jerusalem. And then the second thing happened was this. 185,000 troops of the Assyrians were killed by an angel that night. It ruined the Assyrian army. All Hezekiah did was seek the Lord and prayed and called them the prophets, something all the other kings weren't doing. And then later on in Hezekiah's life, he had a deathly illness. And again, he sought the Lord. And the Lord, because he had lived such a pleasing life, said, Hezekiah, I'm going to heal you and give you 15 more years of your life. And he lived it in peace. What we learn here is this. Well, uh, it, let me read 2 Kings 18, 6 and 7. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not, did not depart from following him, but kept the commands that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. God blesses those who are faithful to his covenant. God blesses those. You would think at this point that Judah would have been done right after Samaria. But there was a king who followed God so the first thing we learned, the first question I have for you today is, are you following God's word? Are you faithful to the word of God? Because God chooses to prosper and bless those who are. Even if you're a Christian. The second thing we see is this, and that's the second king on this list. It's Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. He was 12 years old when he started ruling. 
And he reigned for 55 years. Well, you know what we learned from Manasseh? God will judge and punish sin. Hezekiah has a good story. Manasseh is a bad story. And I think what's so troubling here is this. Manasseh was Hezekiah's son. He watched Hezekiah's life and how God saved him and how God took care of him. His son becomes just the opposite. And I bet you we all have stories or know stories like that ourselves about sons who've gone the other way. But here's what they say, here's what the scripture says about Messiah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations. And it was said that at this point, Judah was worse than the pagan nations. He rebuilt all the shrines that his dad had torn down. He built altars to Baal, Ashereth poles, just like King Ahab. Instead of seeing the example of his dad, he goes to the worst king in Israel. He built altars, get this, inside the temple. He even sacrificed his own son. He practiced sorcery, mediums, and contacted rather than prophets, the psychics. And then he started murdering his own people. And he led Judah into doing these same things. And it got to the point, it says, that God could not pardon Judah no more. He could not stand this anymore. And this was the end of Judah. And I think the truth is this. God will judge and punish sin. And God will punish sin of individuals. God will punish sins of nations. We're talking, uh, it was 100 years or later that he, uh, they actually got, but he will punish sins of nations. He punishes sin. And secondly, this is the line of promise. God will even punish those who are part of the line of promise. So we go on. And the next king was Annan. We won't say much about him, but he actually uh, was worse than his dad. He was so bad that his servants actually killed him. But then... I want to, a third king I want to highlight, and that's Josiah. So now we've seen Hezekiah was king, terrible 55 years with Manasseh, and then Josiah became king. He was Ammon's son, and he started to reign at eight years old. And he reigned for 31 years. And what we learn from Josiah is God responds to genuine repentance. Again, you'd think Judah would have been done right at when Samaria was. You'd think Judah would have been done right away after Manasseh did all this. But God in his grace 
brought Messiah, uh, Josiah along who actually uh, showed genuine repentance. So what we see in Josiah is he was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He followed David's example. He repaired the temple. He actually discovered the law and he repented for himself and for the whole nation. He was a reformer. Under his lead, they, they, they uh, experienced the Passover for the first time for hundreds of years. And this is what they say about Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise again. This was the result of his repentance. So what do we know so far? We know these things. God will bless those who are faithful to his covenant. God will punish and judge sin. But we also see that God, in his grace, will respond to our genuine repentance. So then after after we go to the next slide, then after, because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the, uh, uh, the next slide, please. And we're not going to spend a whole a lot of time on these because these are the last days of Judah. And what those last days of Judah were filled with, were they were filled with evil. They were, these, these kings, instead of seeking the Lord for guidance, what they did was they sought other nations. And these alliances were not effective. And they rebelled and they finally were destroyed. And I'll let you, I, I would encourage you to read, I, to read the story in, from uh, 23 through the rest of the chapter to read more. But these were not good kings. But I want to highlight one of the kings, and that is Joachim. Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiachin. I'm sorry. Uh, I get these chin, Jim, all mixed up. So Jehoiakim is the one I want to highlight to you. So he uh, became king at 18 years old. And he ruled for three months. And he was Jehoiakim's son. And during Jehoiakim's reign, they had their first deportation to Babylon. And it was at that time, instead of Jehoiakim going to Babylon, they sent the nobles. And if you know your scriptures at all, there, and there's a, scripture, there's a book in the Bible called Daniel. Daniel and the lion's, uh, lion's dead with his three friends. Well, he was shipped on that first step, uh, deportation to uh, Babylon. So what happened to Jehoiachin was the whole force of Babylon came upon them. They all came and they invaded the city. Jehoiachin was only been king at 18 years old and he ruled only three months. Can you imagine that? You're, you're 18 years old, you take over this city and all of a sudden the largest and most powerful and the most evil army comes and invades your city. So it didn't take him long to surrender. And it was at this point, um, it was at this point, uh, the Babylonians did a huge deportation. 
All the kings left, all the advisors, the nobles, the officials, the queen mother left, and Jehoiachin was taken a prisoner. In all, there's 10,000 captives that went to Babylon from uh, Jerusalem. And only the poorest were left. And um, so then what the Babylonian king did, he's installed Zedekiah, who basically, his last thing was this. When he uh, decided to run from the city because he rebelled, and uh, they caught him, and what they, what they forced him to do is watch him see his sons all die before him. And then what they did is they gouged out his eyes because they wanted the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. The Babylonians were really cruel people. If you ever study the book of Habakkuk, you'll read how it was so devastating when Habakkuk, the prophet, learned that the Babylonians were going to be the ones who were going to uh, bring God's judgment to Judah. But here's the interesting thing. And then the story goes on. And we read the last of it. But the book of First and Second Kings starts with all this about the construction of the temple. As April read for us at the end, it details the destruction of the temple. The bookends of First and Second Kings are the construction and the destruction. But here's the thing, the last thing I want to point out is that God is faithful to his promise. You know, Cabot has, every time during this sermon series, he said this. He referred to uh, 2 Samuel 7, 16. And it reads this. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time. Before me and your throne will be secure forever. Let me read to you the last three verses of Second um, Kings. We didn't read them this morning. It says this, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month and on the 27th day of the month, the king of Babylon in that year, he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seat of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin put on off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly in the king's stable. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to the daily needs, as long as he was king. God does not forget the people of promise. What looked like it was totally devastated, we get this little footnote at the end of Kings saying, the last legitimate king is still alive, and he's being treated with grace. And it's a harbinger for what's going to come. But one of the things I would like to do, you know, we've gone six weeks through, through um, the book of First and Second Kings, the story. And um, 
Cabot introduced you to a video, and basically this video of the story, you've seen it when we first started, was fast. It is a fast. It's a little longer. But you see the story of First and Second Kings. And one of the things I want to do is I want you to see this, and I want you to watch it and see how much you picked up during these six weeks. And it won't be a test, but it will be helpful for you to see it. But I want to say something about the person who is doing this video from the Bible, from the Bible Project. It may help you to enjoy him more. I met the person who's the head of the Bible Project. His name is Tim Mackey. When he was a grad student in Hebrew at uh, the University of Wisconsin. And this guy is really gifted. And if you heard about his background, for example... He was kicked out of Christian school when he was a kid. He almost flunked out of high school. He uh, spent all his time skateboarding. At 20 years old, he came to Christ through skateboarders, a ministry. And the first time, people said, you gotta hear Tim, you gotta hear Tim preach. So they had Tim come to our church and preach. And uh, he's a skateboarder, when you think about these, he's in grad school. So he comes to our church, and he's got a beanie on his head, a T-shirt on, and some jeans. And I think, holy smokes, what's this guy going to teach us? Everybody's saying he's so great. Well, he opened his mouth, and it was not three months later that they offered him a, a job to be one of the teaching pastors. And all through seminary, he was a teaching pastor, the most the one pastor that, uh, all through uh, grad school, it's the one pastor everybody wanted to hear. Now, he's put together uh, these videos on books of the Bible. Here's Tim Mackey telling us about First and Second Kings. See how you remember what you learned. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. 
Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking making every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. 
Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decision. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But... Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. Well, I hope it made more sense this time than the first time you saw it. And it gives you an idea what First and Second Kings is all about. So how do we respond to it? How do we respond to the last six weeks? What does it mean for us? I think it does the same question that was asked of these kings is asked of us. In God's grace, if, if he's called you, he's asked you to do three things. 
He wants you to serve the one and only true God. He does not want competition. And he wants you to get rid of those idols in your life. Those things that actually seem more important to you than they ought. And finally, he wants you to stay faithful to his covenant. And as I thought about this, is, is part of staying faithful to the covenant is all those messages we get in our life. Truth is, we hear too many messages that are not from God. And we need to spend more time in his word. And so one of the things I'd like to uh, find out if there's interest here, I'd like to offer a four-week uh, study. And it's called Christ in You. What does it mean that, you, that Christ lives inside of you? What does it mean to live with the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we deal with sin and temptation? And so I'd like to offer this over a four-week period for those who are interested. Where and when it will have it, I'll still be thinking. I'll uh, find out the interest. So if you're interested in doing something like this for four weeks, let the church office know or let me know of your interests, and we'll set that up. I'm, possibly it'll be on a Sunday we'll do that. But we want to remain faithful to what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We do thank you for calling us to a relationship with you. We thank you for the, uh, your patience and your desire for us to become like you. Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to give our lives more fully to you. Now bless uh, each of us as we move forward. Help us to follow you more fully. In Christ's name, amen.